Good morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2. <clears throat> and I apologize that there are no printed notes for you this morning, so you'll have to do it the old-fashioned way if you want to take notes or have notes. And as much as I tried to delay it, the Christmas story still is not in December. So, sorry about that. However, I did justify it this way. So, I don't know how many of you are, do not listen to Christmas music until Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving. But it is past Thanksgiving now. So, it is technically the Christmas season. And I think even though it's not December, you guys can give me a pass, maybe. <laughs> <clears throat> Also, I typically have my New King James Bible that I bring up here when I'm preaching, but there are some texts of Scripture that you just have to read in the old language just because it, you, you, it's ingrained in your mind that way. And for me, Luke chapter 2 and the Christmas story is one of those passages. I'll just always, always think of it in the King James Version. And so I'm going to read Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20 in the King James Version where Dr. Luke records these words. <clears throat> and it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, good will toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, <clears throat> the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even into Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child, and all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. 
And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. Let's pray. Once more, Lord, we come to a passage of Scripture that is very familiar to us. We have heard it. We have read it. We may have even enacted it on many occasions, year after year. And yet, the riches within your word can never be mined completely. There is such a depth to it. There is a, a wonderful reality to the, the riches of your word that we find every time we read it and every time we come to it. And so we thank you for this passage that is well known to us. And I ask that you would help that familiarity not to hinder the blessings of the richness of your word, but instead that we would be seeing with fresh eyes the realities of what is there. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for the circumstances surrounding his birth that you orchestrated all according to your divine decree and plan. And I thank you that this can be instructive to us to worship you in spirit and in truth for who you are. We pray all of this now in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a very familiar passage. I think most of us probably could quote this passage um, without looking at it. Or if I were to start one of the verses in this passage, you would probably be able to finish it because we all know it so well. But what's really interesting is that this passage is really foundational for Luke as a historian. Because remember, he is, he's a historian. He's writing a history here for, for Theophilus. He's trying to help Theophilus understand that the belief as Christians that we have in the reality of who Jesus is is not unfounded. It's not crazy. It's not irrational. There are wonderful reasons for us to believe that what we have before us in this story and in our worship of Jesus as the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, has every reason for us to have confidence in, in our belief. And Theophilus, a Roman aristoc- aristocrat, crat, <laughs> ever, ever see the Disney show The Aristocats? <laughs> yes, my boys like that one. The aristocrat. He is an aristocrat, and he is, he is probably wrestling through right now with whether or not he believes this, because there are people who are already trying to undermine the Christian religion and the belief of these Christian people that Jesus is the Messiah, and that his death on a cross was not meaningless, but rather packed with meaning. And not only that he died on a cross, but that he did raise from the dead, even as he said he would, and that that resurrection itself was not meaningless that there was deep theological implications for why Jesus raised from the dead and even had to raise from the dead. So Luke is the historian, and he sees Theophilus, whom he probably met on one of the trips with Paul. And Luke has this concern for Theophilus, and so he begins to craft this very long book, the first part of a two-part series, Acts being the second part. And he wants Theophilus to understand that everything that we believe as Christians has has great foundation, not only in history, as we'll see, but also in the reality of what we have seen Jesus do over the course of changing people's lives as well. And a lot of the people that Luke probably interviewed were people who were impacted by Jesus himself personally. So Luke faces lots of questions about Jesus 
And Theophilus maybe had even pestered him and Paul with questions. But I guarantee you, one of the questions is, how is it possible that a man could also be God? How is it possible that God could take on human form? There were people who were attacking the Christian belief that Jesus was truly God and truly man. And poor Theophilus was probably one of those people who's saying, yeah, they actually kind of have a point. How is it possible that God can be man and, and man could be rightly said to be God? That's what all these Christian people are saying about Jesus. How is this true? And so what Luke does, very extensively, and more so than the other writers of the other Gospels, goes into great detail into the history of Jesus. So much so that he actually gives us some historical figures that you and I probably wouldn't know about, apart from the fact that it is recorded in this most famous passage from Luke 2, that we have here names such as Caesar Augustus and Quirinius, who was governing Syria at the time of Jesus' birth. Things we probably wouldn't care about here in 21st century, and yet for Luke, this was of vital importance to include in the book that he wrote to Theophilus because he wants Theophilus to understand that there's historical warrant that Jesus came in a historical setting and that these people were in a a very real-life situation when they heard about the coming of the Messiah. So what I think Luke is doing in this passage for us, and I'll just give you right away what my main point is here for this morning, is if Jesus is the Son of God, if he is who he said he was, if he is who his followers are saying he was, then the proper response to the identity of Jesus is unrestrained worship. When we look at this passage, we're going to see unrestrained worship. And it's all because of Jesus. If, the, if there was angels from heaven coming down, and if there were shepherds who were going around proclaiming the identity of Rodney King when he was born on June 25th of 1992, that'd be ridiculous, because I'm a nobody. And everyone else in this room, in comparison to Jesus, is a nobody. None of us had angels singing glory to God in the highest when we were born. But there was something about this birth that brought about unrestrained, unhindered, unadulterated worship. And I believe that Luke is telling Theophilus, this doesn't happen just for anybody. This happens to the one who alone is the most high. This alone happens to God. So in a sense, he's saying, this is God, Theophilus. Only God can rightly be worshiped. And our response as Christians then, along with Theophilus, ought to be, I will worship God with unrestrained joy and passion. But why? Theophilus reads this and says, Luke, why should I be worshiping God with unrestrained worship? Why should I be worshiping Jesus with unrestrained joy? And Luke says, all right, I'll give you two reasons, two broad reasons, because we have 20 verses we're covering. I can't go into all the details and everything. So I'm going to give you two main headings for us. And the first heading is this. Number one, because of humble beginnings in verses 1 through 7. Humble beginnings in verses 1 through 7. In verse 1, Luke, like any good historian, begins and says, It came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world, the King James says, should be taxed. 
You may have a different translation in front of you. For example, the New King James here says that all the world should be registered. What is going on here? Well, first, let's back up and answer the question, who is Caesar Augustus? In the end, Caesar Augustus, we'll just, just give you a brief thing here. Caesar Augustus was the, essentially the first Roman emperor, and he, his name was, he's known as Octavian, if you read in the history books, he's known as Octavian, or Octavius, either way. But he took upon himself the name of Augustus when he became the emperor, the Roman emperor. And Caesar Augustus, Caesar obviously meaning ruler or, or lord, if you will, was his title as king. But then he added this name, Augustus. You know what the word Augustus means? It means majestic. It's an honorific title. So already we're getting a hint into the identity of this guy. He thinks a lot of himself. He's saying, I am the ruler, the majestic supreme ruler of all. And it makes sense then why he would say, in all of my regions, I want everybody to come in and be registered so that they can be taxed. So when the King James says that all the world should be taxed, ultimately that's what Caesar Augustus wants to do, is he wants to, to tax the stuffing out of all these people and get money for himself. But he wants to know who all is in his kingdom. And so all of these people have to go and be registered so that they can be taxed. And this guy, Caesar the Supreme, Caesar Augustus, commands that all these people do this. And this census, according to Luke in verse 2, took place while a man named Quirinius was governing Syria. And we don't know a lot about him, but to, he was basically another uh, Roman aristocrat, and he was ruling uh, at a lesser level in the government. Why, do, why does Luke bring any of this up? Why is that at all even important to this story? I think there's two reasons why. I think the first reason why is because he wants to give Theophilus the historical setting. Jesus didn't happen in a vacuum. Jesus was not born as a fairy tale. He doesn't say in verse 1 of chapter 2, once upon a time, there was this woman named Mary and this guy named Joseph, and they had this miraculous child named Jesus. And he did a whole bunch of wonderful things, and he's a great mystical figure that we can learn great moral truths from. That's not what Luke says. Luke says it came to pass in those days. Jesus was born in a historical setting 2,000 years ago, and Luke provides the proof for that historical setting. But I think the second reason that he mentions these two characters in verses 1 through 2 is, is really as a contrast. Because as we're about to see in verses 3 and following, the beginnings of Jesus are quite humble. Born in a stable. No room for him in the inn. Shepherds, the low class of society, are coming to worship him. These are humble beginnings for somebody who came from the throne room of heaven. And Matthew in his gospel emphasizes the fact that Jesus is king. And Luke isn't unaware of that. Luke is well aware of the fact that Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So when we read that there is this Caesar Augustus, the supreme, who thinks he has the right to command all of the people in his, his, under his reign and authority to come in and be registered so that he can tax everything out of them that he possibly can, because he is the supreme ruler, the supreme king, and he will give his decree that all people will obey. 
that Luke says he thinks he's the king. He thinks he's the ruler. He thinks he's the one making the decree. But there is a king who had complete sovereign control over all of these events. And that even as Paul would talk about that those who are in authority are placed there by God, we ultimately understand that no matter how high a person may be in human government and politics, the ultimate king, the ultimate authority is God himself. And so even though Caesar Augustus and Quirinius may have thought of themselves as all that and a box of crackers, God alone is the ultimate sovereign of the universe and over all things. And he decreed that in this time, 2,000 years ago, in a very real historical setting, the second person of the triune Godhead would take upon himself human form and be born in humble settings in contrast to the pompous pride of Caesar Augustus and all of those of his ilk. So in verse 3, Luke records, So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. And that includes Joseph. Joseph has to go and be registered as well. Even though he is a Jew in this Roman Empire, he ultimately is under the authority of this Caesar Augustus. And so he goes over to be registered. But what's really interesting is it says in verse 4 that he went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth to Judea to be registered in verse 5 with Mary. They're not, they're not married yet. Why is Mary coming along? In fact, the historical annals record for us that it wasn't necessary for the whole family to go. It was really more necessary for the, the heads of the household to go and, and be registered. It wasn't necessary whatsoever for Mary to go along. But I think Joseph, the tender heart of a husband who sees his wife great with child, who knows that she is about to give birth to a baby that no other woman in past or future would ever experience. And that she already was carrying with her the signs of shame. For every time people looked at her pregnant, knowing that she was not yet truly married to Joseph, the tongues would begin to wag. You see her? She's betrothed to Joseph, but they're not married yet. And now she's nine months pregnant. She's great with child. What's going on with her? Clearly, she was unfaithful to Joseph. Or her and Joseph are messing around before they're finally married. She has this aura of shame around her. And so Joseph, probably seeing the abuse, no doubt, that she was experiencing, decided to take her with him. To go to Bethlehem, the house of bread, because Joseph was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered. And when he gets there in town, it's unlike our culture where if we go somewhere, we stop and we will typically get a hotel, right? Unless you have somebody along the way you can stop at or you get to your destination and you're going there specifically to visit somebody else. For them, that was more of like what it was. You go somewhere and you try to find family in town because you want to be able to 
to spend that time with them, and that's how you get your housing. But for us, we, we're just like, hey, let's find, let's find uh, the nicest five-star hotel we can find or, or the best-rated hotel or, or maybe get an Airbnb, something like that. That's not the case here. Joseph and Mary are looking for family who will take them in. Often families would have a house and they would have an upper room that was reserved for anybody else who would come that was family from out of town. And when Luke records for us in verse 7 that there was no room for them in the inn, sometimes we tend to think of like the hotels across the way. And there were those during that time, and they were very horrendous places to be. They were terrible places to be. In fact, we look at hotels, and we're looking for nice ones. Um, We're looking for, you know, usually one that is rated well because it's clean, things like that. We're not usually looking for the hotel that has bad reviews. One time I... Laura and I went out to, uh, I think it was actually Ohio. <clears throat> this is not going to be good. <laughs> and uh, we were repping for Maranatha, and uh, uh, they got us this hotel. So I, didn't, I actually didn't do it this time, but they got us this hotel, and we got there. And, like, the floor looked like it hadn't been vacuumed. In the entryway and in the hallway, it looked like it hadn't been vacuumed for months. And we're walking around, and Laura and I are just getting a little nervous. And we're walking down, and all of a sudden... We, we walk by this one room, and you know how sometimes in the rooms they'll have this number on there so you know which room it is? Well, the number was on the floor, just sitting on the floor. And instead of gluing it or nailing it or something back on, they just took a Sharpie and put the number on the door. And I, I just thought, what is going on? What kind of hotel is this? I, didn't, I did not reserve that one, so Laura couldn't get upset with me about that one. However, I did reserve another one. And it was the one, apparently, that Elvis had stayed at. Like, that was this hotel's claim to fame, or motel's claim to fame. But I, I reserved this hotel for our team, and they got bed bugs. It was bad. <laughs> so, either, either way, when we're looking for a hotel, we're looking for a nice place, because there are nice hotels. But that wasn't the case for Joseph's time. Hotels, inns, if you will, were not safe places to be. But that's not what... Luke is really indicating about this particular incident. I think what Luke is indicating here when he says there's no room for them in the inn is that there was no family who was willing to take them into their home. He's going back to his hometown. There is family in Bethlehem. But there was no room for them. Perhaps because of the fact that all of their family was coming in town from out of town and they got there late, perhaps. That, that, that could be an explanation. But my imagination tends to get the better of me sometimes. And I just wonder, if word had already gotten around about Mary and Joseph, and the fact that they're not truly married yet, yet they're already having a child, something that would have been shameful in that culture. And so when Joseph knocks on the door and the family opens and they immediately see Joseph and there is Mary, great with child, about to give birth at any moment. That rather than risking the shame that they would have for having an adulterous couple into their home, they say, we've got a stable out back for you. You can go there. I don't know if that was necessarily the reason, but I do wonder Because Luke is emphasizing the humble beginnings of Christ. That in contrast to Caesar Augustus, the Supreme One, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, was born in a stable. And according to verse 6, 
while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. The birth of this child had come to the appointed time that God had decreed. And she brings forth her firstborn son. This is an important point for Luke. This is not a child that, that she had as a second and a third or a fourth child. This is the first one. She had been a virgin, and now she has her firstborn son. And when he is born, they wrap him in swaddling clothes, and they had to lay him in a feeding trough. Because that's all they could, that's all they could do. There wasn't anything else to do. This King of kings and Lord of lords was born with humble beginnings. And I think when he goes through his life and he tells his disciples that in order for you to follow me, you must take, deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. And when he looks back, Christ, in his mind to his birth and the fact that there was no place for him to lay his head except for in a feeding trough, that perhaps he was thinking about that when he told his disciples, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Not only was this the humble beginning of Jesus, but this was to characterize the rest of his life here on earth. He would have no place to lie his head. There'd be no room for him for anybody. So this Christ, the Messiah, had humble beginnings. But number two, and lastly, that's one of the reasons Luke gives to Theophilus that we should understand that we must have unrestrained worship because of who Jesus is, is because he had humble beginnings as the King of kings and Lord of lords. But second, he also had joyful witnesses to his birth. Joyful witnesses in verses 8 through 20. In this passage here, I have to go through quickly, is probably one of my favorites in the birth narrative. For it's almost as if the camera in the movie pans from Bethlehem, the house of bread, in a stable, to a nighttime where the stars are in the sky. And there are these shepherds keeping watch over their flocks by night. Why shepherds, Luke? Why shepherds? Why does God reveal to shepherds? Couldn't he have revealed it to Caesar Augustus, the supreme one, who could have then had a bulletin sent out and the heralds could have announced the coming of the Messiah? Why shepherds, Luke? Theophilus reads this and just has to be in awe at the witnesses God chose to the birth of the Messiah. These shepherds are simply watching their, their flocks, making sure that there are no animals coming to take them, making sure that no robbers or thieves come to steal them. Perhaps they even had shifts. Some of them were asleep while others were watching, and then they would switch. But in verse 9, out of the silence, suddenly an angel of the Lord stood before them. Once again, in the birth narrative, it's a messenger of God, an angel who comes to proclaim the message from the king. Caesar Augustus may be the king supreme, but the ultimate king sends his messenger, and every time his messenger comes, the people respond in fear. When Zacharias is in the temple and the angel shows up, he responds in fear. When the angel Gabriel shows up to Mary, she responds in fear. And now when the angels come before the shepherds, they respond in fear. In fact, the King James says they were sore afraid. But it isn't just 
the angel that brings them fear. It says, and the angel of the Lord appeared unto them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. It isn't just the angel that strikes fear in the hearts of these shepherds. It is the refulgent, radiant, majestic aura of glory that they have because they stand in the presence of God. And it's almost like when Moses was on Mount Sinai in the presence of God, communing with God, talking with God, and when he comes down, the people could not look at his face. Because they told Moses, your face is shining, it's so bright. Was it because Moses was somehow amazing? Was it because Moses was this deified human now? No. It was because Moses had been in the presence of the glory of God. And when the angels come before these shepherds, they too come from the presence of the glory of God. And just as every other spot in Scripture indicates, when the glory of God is on display, even if it's just a sliver, people respond in fear. And I think these shepherds did not realize what was happening. But what the angel says to them, I just get a kick out of it. They responded, the the, the shepherds responded in fear, and the angel says, Don't be afraid. Really? Okay. I've never seen this before in my life. You're telling me not to be afraid. Why should we not be afraid? The angel says, don't be afraid, for I bring you good tidings of great joy, which is for all people. It's not just for you, even though you're getting the message. It's for everybody. And it's good news. And what is this good news? Verse 11, there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior. A Savior. Would the shepherds have instantly known the theological implications of that? I don't know that they would have. These are uneducated men. They spent their entire lives in the fields watching and tending and caring for sheep. They weren't the highly elite and highly educated of society. But they would have been, if they were Jewish men, they would have at least been familiar with the next phrase that the angel says when it says, there is born to you in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The word Christ, Christos in the Greek, is really the Hebrew equivalent or the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah. For unto you is born this day the Savior who is the Messiah. The Lord. And you will find this sign a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, laying in a manger. He's lying in a manger. Go see for yourself. He's there. And if that were where the angels ended their message and they left, I'm sure that the the shepherds would have just been equally as astonished as what they at what they had seen. But all of a sudden, the third song, remember how I said in Luke's narrative, he gives four different songs in the birth narrative. The first one is the one we probably know the best, the Magnificat that Mary sings. And then we have Zacharias who sings the Benedictus, and we looked at that last time. Well, here's the third song, and it's sung by the angels from the presence of God. 
And they, in verse 13, with an entire multitude of the heavenly host, it's no longer that one angel anymore, it's a heavenly host of angels, an entire angelic choir singing together in the greatest and most beautiful sound you could hear. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. And then they leave. They sing one verse of this majestic gloria, as it's often referred to as. And then they leave. We sing one of my favorite Christmas songs, Angels We Have Heard on High. And the Latin that we sing in the chorus, Gloria in excelsis Deo, is Latin for the very first phrase that these angels sang. Glory to God in the highest. The angels say, this baby, this announcement, this God is worthy of worship and glory and praise. So what do the shepherds do? They say, Let's go and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. They recognize that this message is not some kind of divine hallucination that they got. They understand they're not all hallucinating at the same time. Like people tried to suggest that those people, those Christians who had claimed to see the risen Jesus, they said, oh, you're just all hallucinating. You all saw the same thing, but it wasn't real. It was just kind of a product of your imagination. These shepherds knew this message was from God because they said, let us go and see the thing which the Lord has made known unto us. And they go and they run with haste. It's almost as if they just completely left their sheep and they made haste and they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they see him, it says, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. As they're running back to their sheep, they're telling every person they see, you need to go over to that stable over there. There is a child in there. This child is the son of God. This child is from heaven. You're never going to believe it. We saw angels sing a song. And all those who heard it, they didn't rush over to the stable. They didn't say, the Messiah is here. Let's spread it far and wide. Caesar Augustus, you can just go ahead and hold on to your hat right now because our Messiah, our King, has finally come. They don't. I think it's interesting that in verse 18, Luke says, they marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. They're surprised. They're saying, what, what's the big deal? Like, that seems odd. You saw angels? We haven't heard from God in 400 years. You guys are cuckoo. This message is ridiculous. You're telling me that a child born in a stable is the king of kings and lord of lords? You're trying to tell me that that is the Messiah we've been waiting for? We all know that our Messiah will be the Augustus. He'll be the supreme one. And when he's born, he'll be born in royalty. He'll be born with pomp and circumstance. And surely his messengers will not be shepherds. They marveled. But the, Luke doesn't record that they ran to the stable and worshipped. But he does record in verse 19 that Mary watches everything that's happening. She's thinking about it. She's pondering them in her heart. This is something that we find Luke 
describes that she did over and over again. When Simeon is blessing the baby, she ponders that moment in her heart. When she sees her son talking with the teachers of Israel at 12 years of age, and they're astonished at what he knows, she ponders what he did in her heart. She sees her son and is wondering what is going on. And the song that I mentioned last Sunday, I was actually listening to it on the drive back from Minnesota yesterday, called Mary, Did You Know? I just wonder, I think it captures some of what Mary was doing when she ponders, she's thinking, what, what child is this? Did she know that the child that she delivered would soon deliver her? I don't know what she knew, but she was thinking about these things. She was pondering them. And she was one of the people who ultimately saw her son that she held in her arms at one point in a stable 33 years before. She was one of the women standing at the feet of his cross. And I wonder if the ponderings she had done over the course of those 33 years caused her to ponder in that moment, was this what it was for? Was he meant to die? The shepherds, according to verse 20, returned back to their sheep. And here's their response. They glorify and they praise God for all the things that they had heard and seen, even as it had been told to them. This is their response to the humble king born in a stable. Their response is to glorify and praise God. They may not have known the significance theologically of what Jesus was going to do. They may not have understood all of the ins and outs of the incarnation and how he could be truly God and truly man. In fact, I'm pretty certain they knew nothing of that. All they knew is that this was their Messiah and their God had revealed this to them and they were excited that they were the ones given the job to announce it. Caesar Augustus was high-class society. The angels come from a high-class society in the sense of they stand at the supreme throne worshiping and exalting the King of kings and Lord of lords. But the message that God gives is to the low-class shepherds about his low-class son born in Bethlehem. Our response should be similar to the shepherds. That Jesus Christ, born in a stable 2,000 years ago, killed murderously on a cross in Jerusalem, raised from the dead Sunday morning, standing at the right hand of his Father right now, even making intercession for us, that this King, Jesus, who was born with humble beginnings, surrounded by joyful witnesses and these angelic creatures and in these low-class shepherds is the one whom the angels described as the Savior 
He is the savior of those who place their faith in him. And if you're in this room right now, you have heard the humble beginnings of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And you have the response, just like the shepherds, to fall down and worship and glorify him, to repent of your sin and to cling to the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And as John says, if you do believe on him, you will have life in his name. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, that you have given to us salvation in Christ. That though we were sinners, though we were your enemies, alienated in our minds by wicked works, nevertheless, those who place their faith alone, in Christ alone, by your grace alone, will be reconciled to you. And when they see your majestic glory on display, they will not respond in a terror and dread like so many of us do because of our sin. But instead, we will respond with a reverence and an awe because you have saved us. And in saving us because of the blood of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, you have made us fit to be in your presence once more. So I pray for any person in this room, Lord, who has yet to trust in Christ alone for their salvation, that they would come to know him and taste the sweetness of the salvation that is found in him. And those of us who are believers, who have placed our faith in Christ, help us to respond even as the angels did, singing Gloria in excelsis Deo, and responding even as the shepherds did, praising and glorifying your name, for even as we have read in your holy word, so you have revealed to us. Thank you for this wonderful text. And even though it is familiar, nevertheless, it is filled with the richest truths that feed our souls. Thank you for Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.